1: Hi everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Michael Taft. Michael, thank you very much for joining me.
2: Well, thanks for asking me to come on your show, Chris.
1: Absolutely. Let me read your bio, Michael, here before we get started to tell everyone about just some of the wonderful things you are up to. Michael W. Taft is a meditation teacher, best-selling author, and neuroscience junkie. As a mindfulness coach, he specializes in secular science-based mindfulness training in groups, corporate settings, and one-on-one sessions. Michael is the author of several books, including The Mindful Geek and Non-Dualism, A Brief History of a Timeless Concept, Ego, which he co-authored, as well as the editor of such books as Hardwiring Happiness by Rick Hansen and the now newly released The Science of Enlightenment by Shinzen Young. He has taught at Google and worked on curriculum development for, is it just S-I-Y-L-I or Silly? Silly. Silly? Very nice. (laughs) Michael
2: is also... If you (laughs) know Meng, he's into these kinds of puns. Oh,
1: It's silly. Silly. So, okay. So silly. Michael is also an official advisor to the Therapeutic Neuroscience Lab. He was previously editor-in-chief on Being Human, a site for exploring what evolution, neuroscience, biology, psychology, archaeology, and technology can tell us about the human condition, and was editorial director of Sounds True. From zen Zen temples in Japan to yogi caves in India... Michael has been meditating for over 30 years and has extensive experience in both Buddhist and Hindu practice. Michael is a senior facilitator in Shinzen Young's basic mindfulness system and is a teacher at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society, which I didn't realize. Noah wrote the foreword for my first book, Lovely Young Man. Yeah, nice. (laughs) He currently lives in Oakland, California, and is founding editor of the popular mindfulness meditation blog, Deconstructing Yourself. So, Michael, again, thank you. It's really a pleasure to have you on today.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Thanks. So
1: I actually learned about your work um, through your website, Deconstructing Yourself, before um, I read your books, which you so graciously helped me acquire. Um I don't remember how I came across it. Maybe someone posted a link to a, a an article or something on there. But right away, it really resonated with me. It connected. I appreciate the way that you offer this material in a very down-to-earth, um, easily accessible way. So let's, let's put it like that. Or I'll put it like that. Um, and I found, after I explored your site and then the two books that you'd sent, uh, The Mindful Geek and Non-Dualism, you just carried it over in there. So figured that's what we'll talk about today are these two books predominantly um starting with the mindful geek if that works for you works for me i like it so i figure we'll just jump right into it and into a question actually that you ask in the first chapter of the mindful geek and this question is can mindfulness meditation really deliver or is all of this just some new age marketing scam And now new age marketing scams is something that I've spent no shortage of time discussing on this show because anyone who really takes a look sees that there's no shortage of them out there. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about this. Does it really work? What's the deal?
2: Yeah, you know, you can forgive anyone, Chris, for asking that question, especially when you, uh, look online and see so many different claims for mindfulness or for meditation and so many different websites. And, uh, even when you look at some of the research, it just sounds like nothing could be that good, right? It does everything and it does a whole bunch of different things. And if you order before midnight tonight, you get a set of steak (laughs) knives and you know, it's, it's just crazy sounding, um, And yet, uh, I think what's so fascinating is that with some caveats tossed in there, mindfulness really can do some amazing stuff. And that's because it is such a fundamental skill. Mm. Um, You know, it's working on such a basic level of your mind, such a basic level of your psychology that it can affect a lot of different uh, areas of behavior or systems of the brain, And so you get a whole um, smattering of really positive effects across the board. So increased concentration, but also increased creativity, but also better connection with other humans, but also, you know, let's say um, uh, more calm in life and things like that. So Mm. I think it's almost the other end of the spectrum that becomes more interesting, which is that... For the most part, um, especially in the psychological or corporate levels of mindfulness teaching, which are becoming more and more popular, and which I do a lot of professionally, um, it's undersold in a way that is fascinating, hmm. right? Um, they're going, we go out of our way to show that it will calm you down and make you more creative and productive and a better team member, and you'll, you know, have more emotional empathy or skills or emotional intelligence with people. But we're not saying very much about how it can fundamentally restructure your uh, understanding of the world and your own life. You know, uh, I think it's really interesting that we talk a lot about how it will help people attain their goals. But in that um, venue, we're not talking a lot about how it will actually make you reconsider all your goals, and even <laughs> who's having goals in the first place, right? So, well, where's the money to be made in in that? You know, I mean, right? Yeah. So it's it's fascinating. Yeah,
1: it is. I was talking uh, a few weeks back with Sharon Salzberg, and you know, she does a lot of work with corporations as well, doing this mindfulness and trying to bring, or not trying, she brings it in and shares with them, and you know, she's shared about. It can be trying. It can be difficult at times to to connect with people, or it can also be very rewarding. And, um, and you know, there are those occasions where people really get it and not just get it for work, but get it for themselves. You know, like they see, wow, this actually can help me as a human being, not just, you know, meet meet deadlines with greater peace and calm or, you know... Maybe find another way to market this, so I'll make another million dollars or whatever the case may be. so I'm not jealous of you guys going into that environment, but it's pretty fascinating to me that it's happening. I think it's great
2: it is great and it's actually fun and i I always like the idea of change from the change from within right? yeah it's sort of a a meditation viewpoint to begin with. let's go in and and help to transform cultures these yeah. uh, corporate cultures which make such you know, which are such a big part of our lives, uh, help to change them from within into something that's maybe a little more um, compassionate and thoughtful as well as productive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's reminded me of uh, a friend of mine, Alana. She's an author and a yoga teacher. And when one of her last books came out, she was invited to come on, I think it's like Bloomberg something. It's a a Fox News show. And she posted the link and she got a lot of shit for it when it came out. But she made the very good, uh, um, response, uh, that Republicans need yoga too, you know, like we can all benefit from it. So to say, no, I'm not going to talk to these people because, you know, they might be associated with this or that. I don't know. I appreciated her take on it and that she went in there and did it and she did a hell of a job. So
2: that's right. Yeah. Excellent.
1: Yeah. So you also talk about in the book, meditation as technology, since we're on kind of the the corporate uh, end of things, um, or you equate meditation with the word technology. Can you talk
2: a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, from a definition sense, uh, where we think of technology as a, you know, um, systematized understanding of a subject or area, uh, meditation And even mindfulness obviously qualifies as a technology. Mm -hmm. It's something where we, you know, we know if you try this or that, you'll get, you know, these certain results more, you know, more often than not. Um, Here's how you do it. That's the most basic understanding of technology and meditation fulfills that idea. But beyond that, you know, I'm just an old Robert Anton Wilson-like acid hippie, and I, you know, he was always calling these things technologies, and I, and so was um, Timothy Leary and and that whole group, and mm. so I just sort of leveraged off that idea of, um, in a way, these are ancient um, brain hacking technologies that are uh, can really be used to do some really cool and also very useful and helpful things. So I, uh, in writing a book called The Mindful Geek, that's geared towards people in the STEM community and, and so on, you know, t- uh, technological or engineering or science or math communities, I thought it'd be great to uh, use that word technology. And I feel like uh, it does kind of give you a different flavor, yeah, a different feel for what we're doing when we're meditating.
1: Right. Well, you meet people where they are or with the demographic you're working with. And I think that's a great way that you approach that. You know, with the technology, it didn't throw me at all. Um, I'm not in, well, you wouldn't guess it by looking at me, but I'm not in the corporate world. Again, everyone can benefit from this stuff. I mean, literally, there is not a single person on this planet that could not benefit from this practice. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, uh I would qualify that and say there's certainly people who um might need a specialized form of the practice.
1: Wouldn't disagree with that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, if someone is uh um undergoing a lot of psychotic experience or sure. heavy duty mental illness, it might be uh, take a while to have the effect yes. that we're looking for. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. For most most people could use a nice dose of mindfulness.
1: Well, so can you explain to us then for maybe that one person who is not familiar with mindfulness meditation, what is it and what is it not? I mean, there's. I'm sure that there's no shortage of misperceptions about it in the world.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, you see a lot of people uh, equating mindfulness with Vipassana or with insight meditation. And I think in modern America, that's pretty much the norm now. So I'm just going to do that also. Mm. Um, technically, mindfulness is just a skill that one has when doing Vipassana. But um, for for the basic definition, we can say if you're doing mindfulness meditation, you're having a moment-by-moment awareness of Sensory phenomena or sensory experience. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you're feeling your feet right now in the present moment, feeling the sensory experience of having feet. That's mindfulness meditation. And it can apply to any sensory experience, including internal sensory experiences like thinking. Um, But it's pretty much that straightforward. Uh, I think we should add in there probably that it's non judgmental awareness. So, you are allowing whatever arises to arise without trying to control that or change it. Mm -hmm. So if you're having a, um, let's say you're feeling your feet in the present moment, which is mindfulness meditation, but one foot feels really good and in the other one it hurts, you're treating those both uh, equally. You're not trying to ignore the painful one and move towards the pleasurable one or vice versa Mm. necessarily. So uh, that's kind of the basic idea.
1: Sure. It's like that when you just said that about the non-judgmental. it makes me think of Tonglen, completely different practice, but one, you know, in which where you're breathing in the suffering of the world. And what a lot of people that are new to that do is if they're envisioning this thick, black, heavy smoke and they're breathing that in. But then on the out breath, it's a nice, cool, relaxing breath. They're very quick to breathe that in that the murky stuff. But, uh, you know, they spend a lot more time on that nice, cool exhale. But the trick is it's equal. It's even. It's, you know, meet them both at the same place, give them the same attention.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there's, uh, um, we have some misconceptions about mindfulness from, that come from other forms of meditation. They do apply to other forms of meditation, but not very well to mindfulness. The two I'm always uh, coming back to, because I hear that f- them from students constantly is one that you're not supposed to have any thoughts, which is a you know obviously totally not true, right? And the other one is that you are supposed to you know only feel joy, bliss, peace, or at least you know uh, total relaxation, as if you're you know sitting in a hot tub, sitting in a hot tub somewhere, yeah, and. That's, you know, that might be true for some forms of shamatha or something or, you know, concentration meditation, but it's definitely not true for mindfulness. And what's great about that is it means you can be mindful even when you're having an incredibly shitty day. Yeah. uh, When nothing is pleasant, when nothing is relaxed, when everything's chaotic and intense, which unfortunately describes a lot of days that a lot of us have you can still, by paying moment-by-moment attention to that experience non-judgmentally, you can have quite an intense and powerful and um, fruitful mindfulness meditation. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a very important point you make, and I'm glad that you do bring that up as something I've written about in my own work, because there is that common misperception. You know, it's all love, it's all light, it's all going to be a blissed-out experience. And I remember many, many years ago when I first started, I have a heavy background with drug and alcohol addiction, you know, so I stumbled onto the path as a result of that, which many people do. Um, I start meditating. I'm, you know, terrible at it and not to say I'm really good at it today, but you know, it's twenty minutes, thirty minutes of pretty much nonstop chatter with a few oh, you're thinking, come back to the moment. But I will say six months in or maybe a little after that okay, so maybe those few and far between moments started to string together a little bit more. And in those little bits of actual presence, some floodgates started to open, you know, and a lot of this heavy wreckage of my past started to come up. And I was like, whoa, 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 you know, wait a minute, what is this bullshit? Like, um, where's where's the bliss? Where's the good stuff? But, you know, that that's such a cathartic and healing part of the practice, even though it feels terrible when it's happening. But... Anyways, just wanted to say thank you for mentioning that because it does. That kind of stuff doesn't sell a lot of books when you talk about that. That's that's not what people want to hear.
2: It's not what they want to hear, but it is often what we need, especially yeah. when, um, uh, like you're describing. There's material that can come up that we actually, you know, that you do need to work with, but also just you know, peace and bliss meditations pretty much work best when you're alone in a silent cave. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you want to have a practice that changes your life, a practice that you can take out into the middle of the real world, Mm -hmm. uh, it has to include both positive and negative, or let's say pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Mm -hmm. So this is, again, what's so great about mindfulness is it's not you know, the, the, the peace and bliss type meditation, which I love and don't have any problem with, but, of uh, it's, um, it's kind of a hothouse flower. You know, you, you got to do these long silent retreats for months yeah. to really get there. Uh, whereas mindfulness is, it's a lot more industrial, a lot more, you know, uh, rubber meets the road. Let's go take the stuff, yeah. uh, into the into the shit, into the trenches, and it can really uh, be powerful in those situations. So I love it for that kind of robust quality it has. Yeah, yeah,
1: very well said. So let me ask you before we move on. Someone's listening. They've heard all about this stuff, but they don't know how to do it. I mean, I know. Yeah, they can just Google. There's a million and one books. You you were saying a few moments ago that bringing awareness to the sensations that are happening. Your feet, for example, that's a mindfulness meditation. Beautiful. Is there a bit of a more formal instruction that you can offer someone that, say, has never actually tried to practice mindfulness? Or is it just that simple?
2: Well, it is that simple, but I would say, um, you know, you want to probably at first at least sit down, You don't have to sit in any particular posture, but sit down and try to straighten up and be comfortable and uh, just begin in a very simple way to contact uh, your feet, the sensation in each foot, and you're thinking uh, a word to yourself like foot or body, something real simple like that. So you feel your left foot, and you're not thinking about it. You're not imagining your foot. You're not making a mental picture of your foot. You're feeling your foot like as if it were hot or something. Just you're feeling the feeling of your foot. And you label it and just connect with that feeling. And then you let go of the left one and go to the right one. And dig in with the feeling there really allowing yourself to contact the richness and depth of the sensation in your foot while at the same time not rejecting anything. So if anything is weird, painful, unpleasant, or strange, that's fine. And then if we were going to do this as a guided meditation, I'd just keep working you all the way up, ankle by ankle, shin bone, shin bone, all the way up just feeling each part of your body, feeling the sensation there non-judgmentally in the present moment, labeling it, and just staying kind of open and relaxed. You might want to close your eyes so you can get into the feeling quality more deeply. And then once you got to the top of your head, you could stop or just start on, you know, going back down. Mm. So that's how I would do a quick uh, description of a mindfulness meditation.
1: Yeah, that's Wonderful. Thank you. I mean, and accessible to anybody. It's great, I think, in this day and age where finally a lot of the stigma and, and, and you know, the dogma around meditation is being relaxed a bit. Um, certainly there are still some areas it's not, you know, trying to bring meditation or yoga into schools. in the Bible Belt, I know, is still very tricky for a lot of people. But when you offer it in this way where you're not meditating on Buddha or Christ, and not that there's anything wrong with that either, if that's your thing, but When you're offering it in this way, there's nothing inherently Christian about this body or Buddhist. It's just a body, just like the breath. It's just the breath, unless you want to label it as such yourself. But if not, great. You know, when you were born, you were born a human being. It's a human practice. So I really appreciate that approach, and thank you for sharing that with us.
2: Of course. Yeah.
1: So you also talk about in the book the three elements uh, as a sort of meditation theory, and so let's get a little kind of brainy here, a little, uh, it's, it's CCA. You, you talk about concentration, sensory clarity, and acceptance. So can you break those down a bit for us?
2: Sure. So, um, just for the record, this is a, uh, teaching from Shinzen, my okay. uh, teacher who I think has been on your show. Yep. Um, and he formulates it slightly differently, but, uh. In my formulation, it's concentration, sensory clarity, and acceptance. The Really, the only difference is he says equanimity instead of acceptance. Um, But that's in my, you know, for this particular book especially, equanimity is kind of a weird Buddhist word, so I just use acceptance. It's a little more accessible for people, Um, but I mean it in exactly the same way. So um, the two qualities... Concentration and acceptance are interesting. They go together in almost every form of meditation, whether it's um, Buddhist or Hindu, whether it's a concentration practice or Vipassana practice. You want to have a modicum at least of concentration, which means being able to bring your attention to what you want to bring it to when you want to bring it there for as long as you want to bring it there for. So in other words, paying attention to uh, what you want to pay attention to—that's concentration—and uh, then there is acceptance or equanimity, and really that just means the non-judgmental part. You are uh, accepting in a very matter-of-fact way whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. If your foot hurts, if your foot hurts, your foot just hurts right now. Right. Okay, doesn't have to be a big deal. Don't make a thing out of it. Uh, if a weird Fucked up, difficult, unpleasant thought is arising. Well, that kind of thought is arising. Okay. So that's the acceptance. And you put those two things together and um, you can get some very powerful meditation going. Mm-hmm. However, if you just have concentration and acceptance, it's still a little broad. There's many different forms of meditation that would fall under or that would use those two um, features, like any kind of jhana or concentration meditation would, you know, shamatha would use those. Right. Shamatha even means that in a way, concentration and, and peacefulness or acceptance. Um, but what makes mindfulness special is the sensory clarity aspect, where we are um, trying to deconstruct the sensory elements of experience in a very fine-grained way. Mm. So, again, when I was telling people to meditate on their foot, it's not just, hey, there's my foot, check, done. It's no, like really feel it and get into the details of the feeling and then the details of the details of the feeling Mm. uh, to the nth degree. So that's sensory clarity. And that becomes, in a way, if you've got the concentration and, and acceptance going, that's good. But when you get into that sensory clarity element is when the meditation starts to go deep, 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 deep. Mm-hmm. So um, those are the three aspects. And it's the sensory clarity thing that in, you know, traditional Buddhism um, would be used to do something like, you know, separate the skandhas right. so you could understand the different pieces of human experience. And, and that's what makes it awakening. You know, or ha- that's what gives it the power to deconstruct the egoic trance and show you what you're really made of, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, but all, all three of them are necessary.
1: Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, you, you write about also, and this is something I found very fascinating because uh, I've experienced it as well, stress and relaxation. So, I want to share an excerpt from your book because I, I love this. Um, you write when I first began teaching meditation, I thought that nothing could be easier than asking students to relax. Who wouldn't like that? Boy, did my students teach me differently? Asking them to relax elicited a variety of negative responses. Some people got upset, anxious, or angry, and feeling that they weren't that they were doing it wrong. Others noticed that they were not relaxed and got really freaked out by how stressed they actually felt. And still others felt that joy just couldn't relax, or I'm sorry, felt that they just couldn't relax no matter how hard they tried. Sometimes the response I got was basically, you want me to relax? Fuck you. So why do so many people have this sort of reaction when they first come to meditation? I know we started to touch on it a little before, but in regards to the stress and relaxation...
2: Yeah, um, in a way it's kind of simple. It's just that we lived in we live in a stressed out society mm-hmm. and uh the things uh the triggers that are driving that stress are so intense, like fear and um uh, oversaturation, overwhelm, things like that. They're driving the stress so intensely that when you kind of try to move in the opposite direction, you just encounter the wave of intensity of, Mm -hmm. of overwhelm and of anxiety. And then, for example, if people are working through a lot of issues with something like um, uh, substance addiction, like you were describing, or maybe some psychological material, you know, there's a strong need to not go there. Sure. And to be distracted from it, distracted from it. And so ju- just, you know, in quote, simply being asked to relax is a- actually like saying, um, hey, just get well. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, you know, and on top of it, people um, want to do it right. And so yeah. they start getting more anxious and trying harder, both of which are really bad for relaxing. So it's, we, you know, in short, we just don't live in a very relaxing society. And so it's, um, it's hard for people. Yeah. You think it'd be easy, but it's the same reason so many people have difficulty falling asleep at night. Yeah. Uh, which is the same thing, right? All the bed wants from you is for you to relax. (laughs) Yeah,
1: right. Seriously. (laughs) I've read, uh, and of course I can't quote it now, but I've read studies before that are talking about how most people are, because of their breathing alone in this constant fight or flight stress response, you know, that's very shallow breathing. We're not taking big full belly breaths or at least, you know, some semblance of them like we should. So we are in this kind of constant state, stressor state. Is that something you're familiar with?
2: You bet. Um, yeah. You know, one of the books I didn't send you, I co-authored with uh, Peter Bauman yeah. uh, from Being Human, yeah, uh, a good friend of mine. And we talk a lot in that book about the evolutionary history of humans as, you know, primates and how we are chronically now um, in a fight or flight response, yeah. basically because of the environment and then that's causing you to breathe shallow and the shallow breathing is continuing the fight or flight response so you know this is a well known problem uh, you know you can look at the work of Robert Sapolsky this uh, brilliant uh scientist who talks a lot about how uh stress is just destroying us mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so it's something that uh we really 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 need to uh, learn to not do, and yet every single thing about our society is stressful. Oh, I know. So um, we're just in a in kind of a emergency mitigation mode uh, most of the time, at best. Yeah.
1: Well, so kind of to, to to I guess piggyback on that and a little bit of what we've already talked about, and this will be the last thing we talk about as far as um, that the mindful geek before we move on to non dualism. This is something that still for me, uh, comes up and it's coping with too much feeling. Uh, you write about that and you know, you address the experience of emotional overwhelm that can come up for people, um, from time to time while sitting. And and here I am over 15 years in practice and it still certainly comes up for me. So can you talk a little bit about that and what meditators can do when it happens?
2: Well, yeah, um, it certainly happens. Um, it will continue to happen. I mean, yes. um, I I don't believe that there's a, a, a healthy state of a human being where you don't have emotions, uh, including negative emotions. And so uh, there will always be the possibility of overwhelm. That's just called life. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, if if overwhelm happens whether it's on the cushion or just walking around we need to be able to work with that and honestly the number one thing number one thing is the acceptance piece just okay i'm having an overwhelming emotional experience right now just matter of fact like there it is too much feeling i'm freaking out um and that's not bad and that doesn't make me a you know, shitty meditator or some kind of failed Buddhist or something. That just makes me a person, and that's fine. Um, But beyond that, you have to realize that what we're doing all day is trying to uh, suppress emotion, and especially negative emotions. We're trying to hold them in a box, so to speak. We're cranking down with our muscles around them. You can feel it because emotions are bodily sensations, and... Maybe someone's running down the stairs well, <laughs> uh, Emotions are body sensations And um, I'm just not used to hearing that in headphones like, oh, Wow Sounded kind of cool over here <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, you've got these body sensations of emotions And then the muscles around there try to contain it It's like you try to squeeze it down yeah, And then distract, distract, distract. That's our big, you know, social um, method. Let's watch a movie instead of feeling those feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so um, either because you're meditating and so you're more open and then you start to feel it, or because, hey, sometimes stuff just gets to be too big to ignore. Yeah. Uh, even in regular life, even while you're trying to distract you know, hey, my parents just got divorced. Uh, my little sister, this, and you know, you just start to freak out. Yeah. So, um, the main thing to understand is the difference between the uh, the physical part of the emotion and the ideas about it. Yeah. Um, it's main most of the f- overwhelming freak out part is from the ideas about the emotion. Yeah, because. Um, The actual body sensations, no matter how uncomfortable they get, really aren't that bad. They're not as bad as like hitting your thumb with a hammer or something. They're actually just somewhat unpleasant, but it's the reaction to the emotion and the ideas about the emotion that start to turn it into something that's very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Number one, and this is where the sensory clarity comes in, is really noticing the difference between the body sensation of the actual emotion and the thoughts about it. And once you start tracking those separately, they stop feeding back on each other. And so the, it sort of cuts the feedback loop. Yeah. I don't know if I was clear. There's a feedback loop that's going on there between well, I'm having a feeling in my body and then I start going, oh, my God, I'm having a feeling. So I'm thinking about it and freaking out. And then that causes more feeling to happen and then which causes more freaking out to happen, it's right? A vicious cycle, yeah. And they're tied together like this. But when you start tracking them separately, body sensation of emotion and thoughts about it, and you're detangling those, to use the Shinzen term, right. um, it becomes, they stop feeding back and they're much easier to handle. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, um, you can also do pendulation. So, It turns out that because emotion is body sensation, probably even in the middle of your worst freakout, your most intense anxiety attack, your most total meltdown, some part of your body isn't really having that bad of a sensation. Like maybe the back of your right knee is actually pretty calm, Mm. actually pretty chill. And if that's the case, and if you have some good concentration, you can redirect your attention towards these neutral areas, let's say the back of your knee, and notice that there's relief there. And then come back to whatever level of the emotional sensation um, you can handle and contact that and then go back to the neutral spot in the knee or wherever and then come back to the emotional sensation. That's like a pendulum, right? And that's pendulation. And this turns out to like, um, it keeps you in contact with what's going on. And at the same time, it just tends to kind of diffuse it a lot. Mm. And you can do the same thing even with external sensations like sight. So let's say you I remember one time I was, you know, having a really bad time emotionally. And there was I was in Boulder. I love Boulder. And there was yeah. just this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful cloud over the flat irons, like a big, you know, fluffy cotton ball cloud. And so I just focus on that and the neutrality and pleasantness and beauty of that and then come back to the feeling and then go out to the cloud and then come back to the feeling. And eventually it just kind of uh, balances a little bit. It just kind of new, calms it down, let's say. Mm-hmm. While, while you're not trying to change the feeling at all, you're not fighting the overwhelm or struggling with it, simply by going back and forth to other experiences that aren't overwhelming, your overall acceptance of the situation becomes much, 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 much larger, and suddenly it's not overwhelm anymore. Mm.
1: Beautiful. Thank you for sharing both of those. Um, And I think that's a great place to to switch gears uh, into your other book, Non-Dualism. But before we do, I do want to say, that you know, we just covered a lot of ground, but we didn't even really begin to scratch the surface of everything you write about in the mindful geek. So, I sincerely cannot recommend that book enough to anyone that's uh, checking out this conversation. Um, like I said, so accessible, you break down these comments, even or concepts and teachings in a way that truly are, I, I believe, accessible to to most people, regardless of whether you have any background or, you know, experience with this kind of material. So that's just a tiny taste of the mindful geek. Now we're going to kind of switch gears, not a major shift here, into non-dualism. Um, and I wanted to begin with uh, an, another excerpt, just a brief one, uh, which talks about non-dual awareness versus non-dualism. And you write that non-dual awareness is an experience and non-dualism is a philosophy that talks about that experience and its meaning. And you also go on to say these two things are very different and confusing, uh, and confusing them can lead to all sorts of problems. So can you elaborate on that point and how we can avoid confusion and and any subsequent problems?
2: Yeah, it's funny, uh, Chris. Um, Why did I write this book? I wrote this book because for about 20 years I was noticing this giant um, resurgence of interest in non-dualism in America, particularly with Neo-Advaita, mm. um, and, but also uh, in uh, the Buddhist world, even though it normally wouldn't be called non-dualism there. Mm. Um, and what was so interesting, especially in the uh, Neo-Advaita community, but in general, was that people were you know, um, giving, pointing out instructions and talking about their non-dual experience, all of which was cool um, and a powerful teaching, but there was, I just noticed over and over and over that there seemed to be a fundamental lack of any understanding that there was like a history of people doing this and a, a whole philosophy behind it and a whole um, a way of understanding it that can be very useful. And not only was there a lack of that, but there was an um, active aggression towards that. Like talking about the history of it or the philosophy of it was bad because that was not non-dual or or something. And so um, while I understand that we sometimes want to you know, get people out of their conceptual bubbles and get them out of their head into their non-dual experience, and and yes, that's really important. Mm. Um, I felt that that was happening at the expense of this wonderful body of knowledge that human beings have worked really hard to have for a couple thousand years uh, about that experience and what it how uh, how to do it and what it means and um, to me, there really isn't any anything wrong with talking about it. It doesn't somehow ding my non-dual experience to talk about non-dual philosophy. Right. So um, that I just got fed up with this sort of kind uh, anti-intellectual strain of non-dual teaching in America. You know. Mm. Um, <clears throat> And uh, so I thought to just write a book that was only about the intellectual part of it and just say, well, here's what it is as a philosophy. And the reason I'm so careful in the beginning of the book to distinguish the two is because for someone who's in that sort of um, non-dual teaching world where to to talk about ideas is wrong yeah. or to go to the history or something is wrong i just wanted to be clear no that's what we're doing here yeah. in this book
1: right you know? and i loved and you did you went to <laughs> great lengths to make that very clear which you did a wonderful job of
2: yes well um, you know otherwise people will say well you don't understand non-dualism Right. And i'm like well no, you don't understand the difference between non-dual experience, right? Non-dualism, yeah. So. <laughs> Beautiful.
1: So let's let's talk a little bit about, and I I love this because this is um I always found this very fascinating, via positiva and via negativa, which um you know it's just kind of two sides of the same coin, so to speak, or, or ways of looking at non-dualism, and you talk about them in the book in relation to Indian thought using the via positiva example of, you know, tat, drama, see, or thou art that, very well-known teaching, Um, and the negative or via negativa example of neti neti, not this, not that. Um, So can you talk about the ways in which these, you know, kind of seemingly contradictory statements are really pointing to the same thing?
2: How much time do we have? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs>
1: nothing like a small question, but uh, no, we've got plenty of time. Oh, go ahead, go ahead.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, this is the idea of um, the teachings of non-dualism that come from various Upanishads. So, you know, these texts that existed before Buddhism and before modern Hinduism, you know, they're back in the uh, just this side of the Vedas Mm -hmm. and they're from these forest meditator people Mm -hmm. who were writing about their experiences and they ended up talking about their experiences in ways that sound opposite of each other. And yet they end up actually meaning the same thing. So, um, the Upanishads are obviously famous and some of these formulas or mantras from the Upanishads have become famous. And so one of them is Tattva Masi, which means Thou art that or You are It. it." Mm -hmm. And uh, what that basically means is, I mean, this is a fundamental statement of non-dualism. You know, if you're looking at a chair, you're a chair. If you're feeling... A breeze, you're the breeze. If you see the sun, you're the sun. Thou art that. You are it. There's no difference between you and that thing. Um, And we could contrast this with the other statement uh, you brought up, neti neti, uh, which means, you know, not it, not it, or not this, not that, which is another way of teaching non-dualism, saying, no matter what you see, feel, hear, you're not that. You're not the chair, you're not the breeze, you're not the sun or whatever, Um, which is another way of teaching uh, about non-dual experience. So obviously those sound like diametrically opposite things. So which is it? And this is where uh, it points to the essence of the matter. And I'm going to describe it in the way that I teach it and I talk about it, which will probably piss pretty much everybody off. <laughs> uh, but, you know, well, you're, you're talking in the right to me, place. not them. Yeah. Yes, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's real simple, honestly. Your every, your brain is a bunch of meat inside a bone cage, right? Mm-hmm. In a bone box, like it's sealed in a box and it's got these peripherals Uh, peripheral devices that are telling it about the outside world like eyes and ears, uh, etc. And the brain is receiving these signals from these peripheral devices and then it's decoding those uh, signals and assembling them into a picture of a self and a world. Okay, as long as you understand that, you'll get everything you need to know about non dualism. Because if that's the case, then the brain's experience of the outside world, its sights and sounds, and the inside worlds, the feelings of your body and your thoughts, all arise in the same generated hallucination, right? Or generated, let's say, um, model of the exterior and interior world all at once. So everything, or I'll put it another way, it's a virtual world you build in your head. Mm. It's like being in a first-person shooter. And if just like when you're watching a first-person shooter, the mountain and the uh, guy's head that you're blowing off and the, um, you know... uh, avatar of you and the weapon you have and the clothes you're wearing and all of that, it's all just on a screen. It's all the same thing on a screen. So what these two sayings from the Upanishads are trying to tell you is you can think of yourself as being everything on that screen equally or nothing on the screen completely. And it means the same thing, Mm. that everything that's arising in sensory experience is just activity or signals in sensory experience. Okay, so every thought or feeling of being you is equivalent to every um, external experience of the sun rising or a tree in the wind or whatever, because it's all just sensory signals and from a non-dual perspective you're either identified with all the sensory signals equally privileging none as you they're all equal or noticing that you are simply the awareness of those sensory signals Mm -hmm. and so are none of the content not your thoughts not your feelings not any any of it Mm -hmm. so that's how those end up being the same thing
1: Actually, I think you just did one hell of a job of breaking that down very accessibly, which, again, is why I love, love the books. So that's, that's using a Hindu perspective on these teachings. Um, now, if we look at Buddhism, you wrote, a, a, wrote about no-self and emptiness in your section on Buddhism. Um, and you talk about how the teaching of no-self and how that concept eventually transformed into a philosophy of ultimate non-dual reality called emptiness. So, from this Buddhist perspective, can you talk a little bit, about, a little bit about the no-self teaching, and how it transformed into the emptiness philosophy, and what emptiness is from this Buddhist perspective? How how does it relate to what you've already been saying?
2: Yeah, boy. <laughs> um, again. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of the book, this is just one of those places where I'm going to make so many um, kind of shortcuts in the philosophy that there will be a a million ways to say that, uh, well, actually, uh, but um, I'll do it. I'll go ahead and do it anyway. (laughs) Um, So non-dualism is non-dualism in terms of experience, right? So no self and emptiness are talking about the same experience we just described, that um, the one, the experience called being one with everything, right? There's no, uh, which is the I am that, or thou art, you are it, or the experience of nirvana, like you are none of it. Um, And what's interesting is that the Buddha was talking about it as an experience. You know, the historical Buddha uh, as preserved in like the Pali Canon, He's talking about it as an experience. Um, you know, hey, you look at that flower and you see it has uh, anatta. There's no um, essence to that flower. And it's all just <clears throat> uh, the, even the concept of the experience of a flower. If you look at that sensory experience of a flower closely enough, it de- deconstructs. And so he's just talking about his experience. Um, But when he also said that no self was one of the marks of creation, so presumably everything has no self. Mm -hmm. So there's hints of a philosophy in there. Um, But, you know, you've got these brilliant Buddhist scholars for hundreds of years uh, unpacking this stuff. Meanwhile, uh, each of these philosophers is, you know, getting highly awakened, having a lot of personal experience with this stuff, and they realized that there were some contradictions in the way the Buddha talked about it. For example, um, you know, if experiences like samsara and nirvana are actually, uh, or at least samsara, if it is composed of no self or has the, sorry, the, you know, mark of no self and it just decomposes then how is it actually any different from nirvana? Um, And uh, so how is enlightenment different than non-enlightenment? How is purity different than impurity? How is um, uh, right action different from wrong action? I mean, when you really try to take this no-self teaching, which again came from a direct profound experience, when you try to take that teaching and unpack all the implications and all the far-reaching corners, it turns out you get the philosophy called emptiness, where actually all of it is empty. And then you you get, um, you know, emptiness philosophers saying things like, samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. And then systematically kind of deconstructing all the holy cows even of Buddhism, so you know, um, Nirvana is empty, and um, <clears throat> suffering is empty, and the the way the path to Nirvana is empty and so on. Mm-hmm. so um, to put it in in the in really crude terms, no self describes the experience of, or describes what you notice when you notice any sensory activity, which is just that it dissolves into nothing. But emptiness is more of an all-comprehensive philosophy of that, Mm. um, that includes even the most dearly held um, kind of uh, beliefs of Buddhism.
1: Yeah, beautiful, nice, concise, lovely way to distill it down.
2: Well, I'm sure I'll get hate mail. But. <laughs> Haters <laughs> going to yeah. hate. That's what
1: the kids say these days. But that's what I loved about the book is that it is such a, a nice, concise, short read. But you do make a very clear in the beginning, look, you know, this is what it is. Like, it's just an overview. You, you, Of course, you know, you could write a three hundred, five hundred, six hundred 500, 600 page book about this stuff. And people have, I'm sure. But that's what I really liked about yours. Wonderful introduction. That's how I took it, at least.
2: Yeah, and, you know, trying to at least get people oriented to the con- conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've looked at nondualism in regards to the Eastern wisdom traditions. Um, later on in the book, you talk about nondualism in Western religion and philosophy. So, can you just give us, you know, maybe a, a general idea of what that looks like actually in the in the Western traditions?
2: You know, the simple thing is, Chris, that nobody owns um, human experience. No particular group owns human experience. So people uh, everywhere at all time have the capacity to uh, notice non-dual experience. Um, Something I mentioned in the beginning of the book is that I don't talk at all about all the shamanic traditions or native traditions or indigenous traditions mainly because they didn't write about it so i you know i i just am ignorant about sure. what they said about it um but i wanted to make sure it was clear that i'm sure that they're having just as much non-dual experience as anybody else yeah right. you know um but uh, uh in in western tradition so judaism christianity islam um you know there's certainly plenty of people having non-dual experience and talking about non-dual experience, um, particularly like, you know, some of the very, very well-known Christian saints, um, some of the uh, Hasidic or Kabbalistic masters in Judaism, uh, particularly Sufis in Islam. Mm -hmm. These people are describing this experience. And one of the interesting things about non-dual experience is, it doesn't have any problem talking about God. You know, you can, um, uh, um, have a deistic non-dualism just as easy as you can have a non-deistic non-dualism. Um, but, and, and in certain ways, Western religion is even, um, friendly towards non-dualism, you know, early Christianity, early being, you know, the first 1500 years was apophatic, and, um, in apophatic Christianity, uh, there, uh, God is not a thing, uh, like to put it in, like God doesn't exist, uh, in the sense that a tree exists or a chair exists. God is completely outside of creation. Mm. And when you start talking like that, it's very, very easy to, um, have that sort of philosophy fit with non-dual experience. Um, so... <clears throat> you'll find threads of this in every world tradition because it's in, it's part of humanity. It's part of our shared human experience, but how people talk about it is going to sound really different depending on where you're coming from.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so I mean, the the book was concise. Um, like I said, really appreciated your, your approach. Um, Was there anything I, you know, I I kind of wanted in our conversation just to give an overview to the audience of, you know, East and West as you approached it in the book? Is there anything from the book I didn't cover that you would like to talk about?
2: Yeah, simply that um, we're getting to a place in our cultural conversation in the, in, you know, modern America, Europe, the West, where, um, We've sort of gone through a a kind of um, first stage of being really into meditation, like just trying it out, a lot of teachers from uh, Asia or South Asia, East Asia, and uh, then we went through a whole period of getting all fascinated by non-dualism and kind of, I would say, in a way, taking it too far, sort of like getting all uh, weird about it. And I, you know, like quotes on everything I had, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> I laugh cause I mean, I'm
1: guilty. I'm, yeah, that we're before. all guilty of it. Oh, it's no. not
2: like I didn't, you know, of course yeah. we all did that. Um, but it's, it's, um, I think we're finally getting to a slightly, slightly more mature place in the conversation where, um, it's time to really look at these things in a more holistic manner. And, um, and, for example, something I write a lot about on on uh, the mindful, uh, sorry, on the deconstructing yourself blog, and then I want to write more about, is how mindfulness is a non-dual practice if you take it far enough, and it sh- it should be leading you into non-dual experiences, and you should know what those look like, and it's not magic; mm-hmm. it's simply taking the the thread of sensory experience and following it, following it, following it. It's like, you know, unraveling a sweater. You just keep following that piece of wool all the way to the end. And at the end, the sweater is not there anymore. You just have a pile of wool. In the same way, even if all you're doing is paying attention to the sensation in your foot, like the same thing you did on the very first day that you ever even heard of mindfulness, if you do that far enough, if you take the thread of sensory experience of the feeling of your foot all the way to the end, it will just unravel into emptiness. And so, you know, I think um, the interesting conversation, uh, uh, which has taken our culture a while to get to, and maybe everyone else has been impatiently tapping their foot waiting for us to (laughs) arrive here, is to not be so... um, Uh, concerned about these different divisions and types and all that and really just how can we get, um, how can we just empower more people to have a deeper and more um, meaningful experience of life Mm.
1: Beautiful That lessons answered the last question I was going to ask you which was, I can imagine someone listening to this conversation who's not really had any experience or, you know, right up on the topic and, and, you know, maybe just thinking, why, why should I give a shit about non-dualism? What, you know, how's it going to benefit me? What's it actually going to do for the world? You know, but I think what you just said was a really lovely way of answering that. Unless you have anything you would like to add to that
2: statement. or to No, I'd question. just like to say, thanks for asking me so many questions about this stuff. You yeah. Know, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk about.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, it's been a real honor and pleasure to have this conversation with you. I'm sincerely a big fan of your work. Um <laughs> the website is deconstructing yourself. Uh I will have the link For anyone that is listening or watching this, just scroll down a little bit. The link is right there. Simply click on it. Check out Michael's work. uh, Also,
2: TheMindfulGeek.com.
1: MindfulGeek.com. And the books, The Mindful Geek and Non-Dualism, A Brief History of a Timeless Concept. And, of course, Michael's other work, which you can find all of that at your websites. correct. They're all linked up there, I believe. Yep, sure. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you again, really. It's been an honor and a pleasure uh, sharing this time with you.
2: You too, Chris. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon.
1: Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks.
2: Me too.